America and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on the country of Colombia, a strong security partner of the U.S. and bulwark of democracy in South America. Our guest, Juan Manuel Santos, served as the president of Colombia from 2010 to 2018. Prior to his presidential term, Santos held positions as Colombia's Minister of Foreign Trade, Minister of Finance and Public Credit, and Minister of National Defense. In 2016, he won the Nobel Peace Prize for his successful efforts in negotiating a peace treaty with the FARC guerrillas, ending a five-decade-long civil war that left 220,000 Colombians dead. For thousands of years, indigenous societies settled and thrived in pre-Columbia. Alonso de Ojeda, a companion of Christopher Columbus, integrated Colombia into the Spanish Empire as a colony. Colombia remained one of many Spanish viceroyalties in the region until it gained independence in 1819 after a nine-year battle led by Simón Bolívar. In the early 20th century, Colombia faced internal divisions, as well as tensions with neighboring countries with shared histories as Spanish viceroyalties, such as Ecuador and Panama. In 1948, after Colombian politician and liberal presidential candidate Jorge Alessier Gaitan was assassinated during the International Conference of American States meeting in Bogota, a decade of sporadic violence and unrest followed until the creation of the National Front government in 1958. The National Front government sought to conciliate inter-party rivalries. The liberal and conservative parties alternated holding the presidency and split cabinet representation. The custom of presidents, including opposition party members in the cabinet posts, continued 16 years past the National Front's termination. While some attribute the National Front arrangement to the sharp decline in violence, others argue it contributed to the rise of guerrilla groups like Fuerzas Armadas Revolucionarias de Colombia, known as the FARC, and the National Liberation Army, known as ELN, because the government did not allow space for dissent. Drug trafficking and violence increased with the rise of guerrilla groups in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Formed in 1964, the FARC employed terrorism and guerrilla tactics to promote Marxist-Leninist-Stalagrarianism. The FARC was also an organized crime organization that grew and trafficked narcotics to finance its activities. By the early 2000s, Colombia exported 90% of the world's cocaine, and the FARC was responsible for 60% of Colombian cocaine in the United States. The situation in Colombia was desperate when, in 1999, the American and Colombian governments adopted Plan Colombia, an integrated foreign assistance, military, law enforcement, and diplomatic initiative aimed at combating Colombian drug cartels and left-wing insurgent groups, as well as strengthening state institutions and functions. In the early 2000s, 
both former presidents Andrei Pastrana and Alvaro Uribe pursued peace negotiations with the FARC to no avail. Upon election to a second term, President Uribe appointed then-leader of the Socialist Party of National Unity, Santos, as Minister of Defense. Minister Santos oversaw the strengthening of Colombia's military and directed increasingly effective and intensified operations against the FARC and militias, as insulated investigative and adjudicative bodies confronted the ruthless terrorist and organized crime networks. As president, Santos was determined to consolidate those gains and pursue a lasting peace, with the FARC's number one, number two, and 37 other commanders killed during his administration the FARC was ready to negotiate in good faith for the first time. The efforts resulted in the 2016 peace deal that ended over 50 years of armed conflict. Challenges remain, however, and narcotics trafficking increased after the peace agreement. And following the election of President Ivan Duque in 2018, a former FARC leader called on dissidents to once again take up arms against government forces. We welcome President Santos as Colombia emerges from the COVID-19 pandemic, copes with ongoing crisis in Venezuela, and prepares for a presidential election in 2022. President Santos, welcome to Battlegrounds. Let me begin by saying what an honor it was to work with you when I was National Security Advisor to continue to strengthen our relationship and, and the work that we're doing together, really, uh, to, to to benefit the United States and Colombia, but but really across the whole the whole hemisphere. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be with you. Thanks for joining us. No, thank you, General, for inviting me, and it's an honor to participate in this event. Hey, you know, I, I thought we might just begin the discussion with a general question. Could you tell our our, our viewers about the tremendous success story? of the last two decades in Colombia. I mean, some of our viewers might not remember, you know, that at the end of the last century, many were predicting that, that Colombia enmeshed as it was in, in a terrible fight against an increasingly powerful uh, drug cartels and insurgent organizations, Marxist insurgents. Some predicted, okay, Colombia's on an inexorable path towards state failure. How did you and other Colombian leaders and the Colombian people Prove that prediction wrong. Well, as you say, uh, at the end of that century, the beginning of this century, we were on the verge of being declared a failed state. And uh, this was because uh, we were on the verge of being a failed state. Uh, one third of our country was controlled by the guerrillas, another third by the paramilitaries, and the state was on the defensive. And uh, across the board, we had the most powerful drug cartels in the world. So we were in deep trouble. Uh, and uh, we decided that uh, we had to uh, correct the situation and uh, the relationship that uh, we have always had, a very special relationship with the US, uh, brought a plan which was called a Plan Colombia. Um, I remember very well, I was Minister of Finance at that time when uh, President Clinton went to Colombia, to Cartagena. He went with the then Chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, Joe Biden. He went uh, with uh, the Speaker of the House, uh, 
Speaker Hastert, because it was a bipartisan uh, initiative, uh, Plan Colombia, and they went to say to the Colombian government, you must make this work. We're investing a lot of our political capital, both the Republicans and the Democrats, and uh, we need for you to also put all your uh, heart, your will, and your passion behind uh, this plan. And we said, yes, uh, we will do that. And we designed a program uh, to strengthen our armed forces, to strengthen the effectiveness of our armed forces. And we started also to strengthen the institutions that had to do with uh, law and order, and the justice system, the attorney general's office, um, and uh, the armed forces uh, as institutions. Uh, we started to uh, cooperate, uh, and the United States gave us tremendous help in training our forces, um, training them better, and uh, you gave us uh, access to uh, very important equipment, especially helicopters. We we bought many of them. Uh, some were given by the U.S. Uh, the state of the art in terms of helicopters, the Black Hawk helicopters, um, and uh, Plan Colombia started to to have uh, very positive effects. Of course, that was one element. Plan Colombia was a, a key was very helpful, but uh, besides Plan Colombia, uh, there was a, a political commitment uh, of the uh, Colombian uh, uh, political parties and uh, the Colombian um, elites, if you want to call it uh, in some way, uh, to, to try to fix uh, this, uh, this situation. And uh, through political will, through perseverance um, through effectiveness of our uh, armed forces, uh, we started to uh, bring the country back to uh, what uh, a normal democracy should be. Uh, we uh, started to implement a new constitution that we had approved in the, in the uh, early 90s, uh, a constitution that has as uh, the core of, the, of its uh, framework, the defense of the human rights of the citizens. Um, we started to infiltrate the, the drug cartels, to dismantle the drug cartels. Um, we started to uh, infiltrate and weakened the guerrilla forces. We had the FARC, which was the oldest and strongest guerrilla force in the whole of the Western Hemisphere. Um, and so slowly persevering, uh, we dismantled the drug cartels, we demobilized the paramilitaries, and we were able to bring to the negotiating table the FARC guerrillas. Uh, we signed with them a peace process. They are now um, in the phase of uh, implementing the peace process. And uh, we uh, also took very important economic and social uh, decisions in order to strengthen our economy, to uh, 
to reduce the gap uh, because Colombia is a very unequal country between the rich and the poor, to strengthen the middle class, uh, to strengthen our education system, to strengthen our, our health system. Uh, and that uh, brought us to a, a point where um, in the year 2018, uh, in the United Nations, uh, we were declared the best news of the world by the UN Secretary General. Uh, I remember President uh, Obama uh, saying, my God, uh, what a tremendous uh, uh, step forward you've made uh, to, to set a precedent for other countries uh, through your own efforts. And I said, uh, our own efforts, but with the help of the US, uh, we were able to uh, to bring Colombia to what we now have, which is a work in democracies. We still have a lot of problems. We still have a lot of violence. We still have drug trafficking, but compared to what uh, we were in uh, the early uh, uh, century or in the year 2000, which was when Plan Colombia was launched, it's a very, very big difference. Well, I'll tell you, Mr. President, when I was briefing President Trump in advance of, of your visit to, to Washington in 2017, I used Colombia as an example of good news. And you recall at the time we were in the midst of policy reviews on the Middle East and on South Asia, especially in connection with the Afghanistan war. And as I laid out sort of the, the history of the United States and Colombia working together, I tried to highlight you know, what can be done if we take a sustained long-term approach to complex problems, and if there is strong leadership in that country that has, as you mentioned, the political will, right, to, to be able to undertake the reforms and to strengthen the state and uh, to combat these groups that were that had caused so much uh, suffering in Colombia for so long. Could, could you explain to our viewers the, the nature of the, of the U.S.-Colombian relationship, the role that U.S. assistance played over time uh, as maybe a, a way of sharing the good news and, and helping to maybe bolster our confidence in our ability to take an effective approach uh, to foreign policy uh, and to collective defense in this case? Well, there is a special relationship between the U.S. and Colombia that goes way back to probably when the OAS was created. Um, this is President, the Organization of American States. Right. Uh, President Kennedy came to Colombia. And uh, when he launched this, uh, his program of, of the Peace Corps, uh, Colombia was one of the countries where uh, he was received with more enthusiasm. And since then, there's been a, a very good relationship with all the presidents. I personally uh, had... Uh, a relationship, a very positive relationship with uh, President Reagan, Bush father, uh, President uh, Clinton, Bush Jr., with Obama, and with uh, President Trump. Uh, as a matter of fact, with Obama and Trump, we had a special uh, group uh, that uh, had the uh, bilateral agenda that was... Uh, uh, chaired at a very high level. As a matter of fact, the right now the, the Secretary of State, uh, Tony Blinken, was chairing that special group. Um, and that allow, allowed us 
to speak freely, uh, bluntly, frankly. Uh, when we had trouble uh, or problems, we addressed them uh, uh, directly. Um, and that helped very, very much. And Colombia became the best ally of the US in Latin America. And that was even said publicly. Sometimes our, our neighbors in the region and our friends in the region felt a little jealous. Why are you so such a good friends of the, of the Americans? And he said, because we, we uh, nourish this relationship. Uh, we feed this relationship uh, almost on a daily basis. And it has always been a bipartisan relationship. Um, and we not only had a good relationship with the executive, we had very good friends in, in Congress, uh, friends for a long time. So that created a, a, a special bond. And also um, the relationship with the armed forces, with the, uh, the, with the uh, Navy, with the Army, uh, our fight together against drug trafficking and our fight together against the uh, guerrillas, that also created a, a special bond. And uh, uh, the, because the, many Americans say that uh, you came to Colombia to teach us uh, many things and that the students became better than the professors. Because uh, for example, General, uh, you might uh, um, remember that there are some side of Olympic Games of the Special Forces in the Americas, Canada, US, uh, uh, Brazil, Argentina. And um, in the last years, um, I'm, I'm glad and proud to say, I'm sorry to say uh, state in a US audience, but Colombia has been number one and the US has been number two. <laughs> but that, that type of relationship has been extremely well. And we have a very good relationship in terms of uh, trade. We have a, a a free trade agreement with the U.S. Uh, we have a lot of cooperation uh, in in other sectors. We're now working almost in in every aspect of our uh, respective national agendas: you know, the environment, um, uh, education, um, and uh, even now with this pandemic, uh, we have had a, a very fluent uh, uh, communication and. Uh, good cooperation. And I think uh, this is an example of, of two countries uh, that understand how diplomacy should work, uh, how good relations uh, um, should be um, nurtured every day, um, that our relations, relations that are based on, on values, on principles uh, that we share, we share uh, with the U.S., the basic values and principles of our political systems. And that has allowed us to work together bilaterally and to work together multilaterally. And I think, uh, and we should continue to do that because the benefits of that, we can see them uh, every day and we can uh, multiply them if we continue uh, with this attitude on both sides. I think two of the points you made are so important. The candid, the, the candid uh, discussions that we have with one another. There's no pretense that ever in our conversations. And then those relationships that we've built over time. You know, when I, when I was commander of Fort Benning, we had that special relationship with the Lanceros between the Ranger School and the Lanceros. And 
And one of the, the greatest old soldiers, uh, Colonel Ralph Puckett, was one of the founders of the Lancero School. And of course, as you, as you mentioned, uh, your special operations forces are, are just world-class. And, and we come in second now in competitions within the, uh, within the hemisphere. And then, and then some of the tremendous operations that your special operations forces conducted. I, might you, you want to share with uh, 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 maybe our listeners, that, would you mind sharing the story of the 2008 uh, hostage rescue operation that was extraordinarily successful? Well, yes, uh, we had uh, 15 kidnapped uh, people by, by the FARC uh, guerrillas, three of them Americans. They were in the middle of the Amazon jungle, and they were very well guarded. And we had uh, no idea uh, where they were. Of course, uh, there was a tremendous pressure from the U.S. Say, Let's uh, let's rescue our, our 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 compatriots, and of course, from our side, we had also a tremendous pressure. And there was this uh, very important lady; um, she had been a presidential candidate, and she had also a French citizenship. So there was a tremendous pressure from France and from the whole of Europe. Well, in one of the lessons of many lessons that I learned from. U.S. intelligence and British intelligence. Um, I've I learned that uh, the intelligence should uh, think out of the box, should be creative, should be audacious, and I told that to the people of my intelligence when I was Minister of Defense. Uh, think out of the box, uh, out of the ordinary. If you have uh, very uh, strange and crazy ideas. Bring them up. We will analyze them. And there was two ladies who were uh, hearing the conversations of the FARC leaders for many uh, years, and they knew exactly how how they communicated through their radio operators. Uh, they even imitated their voices. And they said, "I think if you can uh, get into their communications, we can supplant." Uh, the radio operators and give them orders. And at the very low level, they said, no, you're crazy. I mean, this is uh, impossible. But somebody brought me the idea and I said, it doesn't, it sounds crazy, but it's possible. And I started to uh, to push uh, the the commander of the, of, the, uh, of the army and the commanders of the intelligent in, in all the forces, Let, let's see if this could work. And we got into the, in, intercepted the, uh, one of the communications and we tried, and one of these ladies uh, supplanted the radio operator of one of the commanders and she said, do this and do that, and they did it. So we said, wow, we have here the possibility of rescuing the kidnapped people. And so we penetrated the communications of the people who were who were guarding the the kidnapped uh, persons, uh, and we gave them the order to to release them and give them to a um, humanitarian mission because the new commander of the FARC, because the old one had died, uh, wanted to see them, and uh, that uh, helicopter and that humanitarian mission was the Colombian Army Intelligence. And we were giving 
the 15 kidnapped people, uh, that was full of guerrillas, uh, about 300. Uh, they, they went uh, out of, of the camp where they were and in the middle of the jungle. And so without spilling one drop of blood, we rescued from the fiercest and strongest guerrilla forces, 15 kidnapped people. I remember um, that Larry King, that he died some weeks ago, yeah. interviewed me that day and he said, you know, uh, Minister Santos, I am a, I'm, uh, my hobby is uh, intelligence, uh, uh, military intelligence uh, operations. And I must say this has been the most uh, astonishing operation I have seen. And then when I went to Washington, um, President Bush was so excited. He said, when Minister Santos comes, don't bring him to the, uh, to the Oval Office. I will go to where he is, is and I will go to him. And I was precisely in the office of the National Security Advisor and he came <laughs> and he said, congratulations. And I know who can be you in the film of this uh, operation. And I said, uh, who is that, uh, uh, Mr. President? And I make a parenthesis. I was with my ambassador, uh, Carolina Barco, uh, ambassador at that time. She had been in my same class, so she has my same age. Uh, when President uh, uh, Bush said, Harrison Ford, she said, no, no, I object. And I said, Why? He's too old. <laughs> uh, that, that was a, a tremendous operation and uh, it's something that we were very proud of. And uh, uh, the three Americans were were rescued uh, and they are now living with their families uh, without one drop of blood being spilled. You know, it's, it's an example of of the strength of of uh, Colombian institutions and the military over over time, an example of your strong leadership in a crisis. And you know, later as president, you received the Nobel Prize, right, for the for the the tremendous achievement of a peace agreement with the FARC. Um, but as you know, it's not been an easy road, as you know better than anybody, in, in terms of implementing the agreement and consolidating the gains that were made over over two decades. And when we met in the White House, we had discussions about concerns over the peace agreement, especially the, the increase in narcotics trafficking. So I was, I was just going to ask you, how do you see the situation now? What more could Colombia, uh, with support of the United States, do uh, to, to address production distribution of cocoa? What other obstacles do you see from a security perspective today? Uh, I just I, And I'll just note for our viewers that, that President um, Ivan Duque uh, recently made the decision to resume aerial spraying, for example, of, of the coca fields. But but this, of course, is a, is a problem that is, has been extremely difficult, uh, Mr. President. What, what can you tell our viewers about the nature of, of the narcotics problem and, this, and just more broadly, you know, the obstacles that you see for full implementation of the, of the peace agreement? Well, let me say, uh, to begin uh, answering your question, that making peace is more difficult than making war. And it's a typical type of leadership. Uh, I made war as Minister of Defense, and that's why I was elected president, because I was a war hero. I was a, I was a hawk. And then I became a dove. That was very costly politically. <laughs> and 
making well, and, and, the, and the president under whom you serve, President Uribe, went from being a, a dear friend to uh, to uh, less right. than a dear friend, I, I might because, say. <laughs> because he thought he thought I was a traitor because I brought the guerrillas to the negotiating table. He wanted he wanted to uh, disappear the guerrilla forces, which was impossible in a geography, and you know that uh, general uh, better than I do. The Colombian geography is ideal for guerrilla warfare. Yeah. And it's better to end the process. There's never a perfect peace, never. But uh, a bad peace is always better than a good war. And so we implemented, we, we, we signed the peace agreement. One of the elements of the peace agreement was uh, the eradication of the coca plantations, which we had tried for almost 30 years spraying and i must tell you uh, uh, tell you and the and, and everybody that is hearing us in plan colombia uh, i was responsible i was either minister of defense or president for almost uh, 70% of the time and so i had i was responsible for spraying more hectares than any other person in the history of the world because Colombia is one of the few countries, the only country that sprayed uh, against the uh, coca plants, uh, against illegal plants. And I extradited more Colombians to the US than anybody, more than 1400 expeditions I signed as president. I seized more tons of coca than any other uh, person or president uh, before me, um, because we had a very effective cooperation with the U.S. Navy and with the Army Intelligence and with the, with the uh, Southern Command, and that was extremely effective. We seized tons and tons of coke. However, the business continued, and I say that it's like a static bicycle that you pedal, you pedal, you pedal, uh, you do all kinds of efforts and you look to the left, you look to the right and you're in the same place. Why is that? And I have learned the hard way that the approach that the world, when the world declared war on drugs back in the 1970s, President Nixon uh, was president at that time, the approach has been the wrong approach. Um, you need to be much more practical. Uh, you cannot treat a consumer of drugs as a criminal. He's he's a he's a, somebody who's sick. He's addicted. You cannot treat a peasant who grows marijuana uh, as a criminal and take him to jail. If you have uh, uh, many states in the U.S. where right now uh, producing, selling, and consuming marijuana is legal. How can you explain to that person that uh, he's going to jail, but in the U.S. that is legal? Uh, so we need to change the approach. And the same way that the U.S. Uh, got rid of the mafias during prohibition, uh, and I, I love to refer to an anecdote in the last and marvelous uh, in biography of Winston Churchill uh, by 
a writer called Andrew Roberts. You know, he's a fellow here at Hoover as well. Andrew Roberts is. <laughs> oh, so, so he, he has this anecdote. Churchill arrived in California in the 20s through Canada, and he asked for a drink. And they said, no, no, Mr. Churchill, this is prohibited here. And he said, what, how strange this country is, referring to the U.S., this huge amount of profits that are made in the sale of liquor, you give them to the mafias. In my country, we give them to the treasury. That, in a way, summarizes uh, the, the, the approach that I think we, in a very bold and frank uh, position, should now uh, adopt the war on drugs. We must say a, a war that has been going on for 50 years and that has not been won is a war that has been lost, and we must recognize it. And then if we lost the war, what do we do about it? How can we cope with that? And that is a type of cooperation, U.S., Colombia, and the rest of the world, because this is a problem for the whole world, not for U.S. and Colombia only. Well, hey, thanks, Mr. President. Uh, it, it, it does require fresh thinking, obviously, because these, as you, as you recognize, these networks profit from the trafficking. They become stronger. They become sources of, uh, of state weakness. I mean, these problems are related. We see what's happening in some of the Central American states and in, in Mexico uh, as well. Uh, I'd like to, to talk to you maybe about some of these broader dynamics across the hemisphere. Uh, one of them is social unrest, right? It's been a heck of a year for all of us, right? With a, a pandemic and a recession and so forth. And and I think you've seen the tension uh, between you know, between those who are in support of a free market economic approach in Argentina, those who who would like more of a statist approach uh, to to their economies. Uh, in Chile, uh, there have been demonstrations as well, and in Colombia in 2019, even before the pandemic hit, protests in, uh, about economic inequality. Uh, and and so as Colombia. All of us, hopefully, are beginning to emerge from this pandemic. Uh, are you concerned about about more social unrest, and and how do you see the, the situation within Colombia as you emerge from a pandemic, and the country's headed toward a presidential election in uh, in 2022? The answer is yes. I, I am concerned. I am concerned because this pandemic uh, has showed us much more clearly uh, the many things that were wrong, uh, not only in Colombia, the whole region, we are the most uh, uh, in unequal re uh, region in the whole world, the most unequal continent in the whole world. The concentration of wealth in Latin America is higher than anywhere else in the world. Um, this showed us the weakness of our health systems the pandemic, uh, and it has aggravated poverty. We, in the whole region and in Colombia, had been rather successful in bringing down poverty in the last uh, 15, 20 years. Uh, but the pandemic has brought us back to at least uh, 20 years uh, before, and this is going to aggravate the social unrest, which was was uh, uh, in, a, in a trend of getting stronger and stronger, the unrest, because of the inequality, 
because of what uh, many people call the revolution of rising expectations. With so many people getting out of poverty, they now say, no, I can progress. So they demand more and better education, more and better health systems, more and better infrastructure. And many times the uh, states, they, have, they don't have the capacity to fulfill those demands. So the pressure, the social pressure increases. And what we saw in Chile, Chile was uh, the star of Latin America in, in every indicator, uh, growth, uh, fight against poverty, uh, equality, they were the best. Why was Chile uh, so uh, unrestful before the pandemic? Well, precisely because people were very frustrated uh, because they wanted a lot more. So we have, a, we have an opportunity now and a great challenge. And I think working with the U.S., we could also do it because the U.S. is in a way also in the same, in the same uh, situation. We need to reconsider a lot of our, what they call the social contract. What is it that the state should do? Uh, what are the priorities? Um, it's not only growth. It's not only what the IMF or the World Bank says. Uh, there are other priorities that people uh, need and they ha have to be addressed. One of them that is becoming more and more important is the environment. Um, and we need to uh, introduce into our development plans those new ingredients that people are, are demanding. Uh, one of them being uh, taking care of our environment, of our, uh, of our biodiversity. Uh, Latin America, Colombia is one of the richest countries in terms of biodiversity in the world. And uh, if we continue to, uh, to destroy our forest, well, all the world is going to be in, in, in worse shape. So th there are tremendous challenges. I think I always try to uh, see the challenges as opportunities. Uh, and uh, we have a great opportunity to sort of uh, re-engineer our social contract and prioritize things that we did not prioritize before. Uh, Chile, again, using the example of the best performing country. Well, they, they bragged about, look our, at our growth rates, look at our, our these indicators of GMP, uh, but then uh, there are many things that are not included in those indicators that are very important to the people. So that's what we have to sort of reestablish and, and negotiate among the people. A social contract is a negotiation among the people. What are our priorities? Uh, who should we really help as a country and as a state? To what extent the state should intervene or not? Uh, these are questions that uh, after the pandemic, uh, every country is going to have. And I hopefully with good leadership, this will uh, not be a matter of social unrest, but a, a matter of uh, political discussions that unite the countries. I am very, very concerned uh, of what is happening in Latin America, which is also happening in the US, of this polarization. Uh, people right. not wanting to hear other people that think uh, differently from what you think. Uh, we need to do away with that.
finding common ground, building bridges in the US and in Latin America and between the US and Latin America. And I think the post pandemic is an, a good opportunity to do that. Yeah, I think one of the areas of opportunity are adjustments to supply chains that have been biased very much in favor of efficiency and cost cost effectiveness rather than resiliency. And of course, the over-reliance on China for, for many of the, the critical uh, cr- critical commodities, uh, products that we needed to combat the pandemic uh, was an area of vulnerability. I, so I, I agree with you. There are tremendous opportunities in the hemisphere. Uh, there are examples of, of countries that are struggling. I think uh, some of the countries are those that have taken the statist approach to, uh, to an economic model. This is Argentina, which is facing a debt crisis. The most extreme example, though, is is your neighbor, a failed state of, of Venezuela, right? And, and I think the, the cause there is, is pretty clear. It's the nature of that authoritative, authoritarian dictatorship, which has abrogated the Constitution, denied the people a say in how they're governed, and created all the mechanisms of a police state, you know, with the help of, of Cuba and uh, and in league with others like, like Nicaragua. Um, I'd just like to, I, I know we worked on this and, and I really appreciated your leadership uh, within the OAS, the work that we did really with the group uh, of countries that were most affected, you and Brazil in particular, but also Peru uh, and, and Chile and Mexico played, a, and Argentina played a very strong role in, in, uh, in calling for the restoration of constitutional government in Venezuela, uh, isolating Maduro, strengthening the opposition, um, and, and then trying to come up with some form of a negotiated a settlement to get Maduro out of there and restore Venezuela's uh, representative form of government. How do you see the situation now? It just, I mean, every time I think it can't get worse, you know, Venezuela, they've hit bottom. It does get worse. And what, what do you, how do you see it developing in the future, Mr. President? Well, General, you must remember uh, the meeting we had with President Trump and all his cabinet in New York in September of 2017, and many of the Latin American presidents. And I told President Trump, and I told you and the whole cabinet there, there was Vice President Pence was there, uh, the Secretary of State was there, uh, the Chief of Staff, uh, General Kelly was there. And I said, Venezuela is is an airplane that ran out of gas. It can either crash or can have a soft landing. And uh, President Trump asked, asked me, uh, what do you mean by a soft landing? I said, a, a peaceful and negotiated solution. Maduro must go, uh, but he must go uh, in a way that uh, will be an effective uh, solution to the Venezuelans. And I said uh, at that time, you must bring the major stakeholders to allow that soft landing. And uh, President Trump, uh, you remember, asked me, who are they? And I said, China, Russia, Cuba, of course, the US and Latin America. Uh, They are the major stakeholders that can bring about this change. And after all that has happened since then, the very hardline approach uh, with the sanctions, and uh, the diplomatic diplomatic isolation, the cruel reality is that today Maduro is stronger than he was 
two years ago. Uh, Venezuela is much worse, but Maduro, his regime is stronger. So I think, uh, and I th and this is, many other people are now thinking that the solution is a soft landing. We must bring the stakeholders uh, and we must build like in any uh, conflict resolution, a bridge for the regime to go out. Uh, this is uh, uh, the only way to have a peaceful uh, transition. I think this is possible. Um, and I hope that uh, uh, the conditions um, can be created. Uh, a, a solution of this sort uh, needs the necessary conditions to, to be present. And I think these conditions are now becoming uh, uh, a reality. And I am also optimistic that a solution of that sort can be achieved. No, I, I, I think we, we have to do something different. I think also, Mr. President, you know, the, the, the uh, isolation of the regime from sources of external support that support his police state, right? And, and of course, this is mainly Cuban expertise and Cuban personnel, right? Uh, Cuba is, is trying to hang on to the so, one model that mirrors theirs. Um, something, gen something general that, that uh, more and more becomes a, a fact. The, the policy of the sanctions uh, don't uh, hurt the regimes, they hurt the people. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you have a lot of examples now. Well, Cuba is one of the examples. The uh, Iran is another example, and Venezuela. Uh, yeah. So we also have to be, uh, be uh, audacious and, and, and creative in the solution. And I believe, I truly believe that a negotiated solution is possible because Maduro knows that uh, his, uh, his days uh, are not eternal, <laughs> that his days have an ending and that he wants, he, he wouldn't want to end the, the way that uh, he will end if things simply continue to deteriorate and that could take a long time. Remember, remember Zimbabwe. Uh, yeah, I, absolutely. I, I, I remember hearing, oh, uh, Zimbabwe is going to collapse uh, next year or the next five years. Uh, it, or North uh, Korea. North Korea is another example. It, right, it took 40 years, 40 years. So, yeah. And Venezuela cannot take 40 years to get rid of this regime. Yeah, it's, it's heartbreaking to see what's happening with the Venezuelan people. And it's such a rich country and so much potential. It's you know, um, it, it shows you what, uh, you know, what, what, so it's a great example of what socialism does and uh, an authoritarian regime that's, that's, uh, you know, takes, takes on the status economic model. Hey, I, I do want to talk just a little bit more about emerging from the crises that we've been in. And, and, you know, you already mentioned that the strain that the, the pandemics put on, on, uh, on Colombia from a, from a social and economic perspective. And, you know, there are these interconnected problems, right? Of 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 uh, you know of of healthcare and and uh, and energy security and food security and water security. Uh, what else do you think are really critical elements of of you know improving healthcare in the wake of COVID nineteen? What have you learned from you know from the pandemic in in Colombia? And what are the other steps to to help 
helped Colombia, and then by connection, you know, the region emerged from these traumas. Well, I think that this pandemic has allowed us to to realize that uh, we all live in one house, which is the planet. It's called planet Earth. And we are one race, which is the human race. And if we don't care of our, if we don't take care of our, of our house, we will all perish. So climate change and the environment is becoming the most important challenge for the world. But the good news is that this pandemic it's the first time that the whole of the human race uh, starts to work together to solve one single problem. And look at the results. Remember a year ago that they said, oh, the vaccine will take years. Well, it took months. And it took months because science was elevated to where it should always be. And we do that in our challenge to preserve our planet and to fight climate change, we will always also be successful. In terms of health, many people don't realize that the origin of the pandemic is the spillover between wildlife and human health. Animal health and human health, that's the origin of the pandemic. And what happened to the health of, of the animals and wildlife? The deterioration of the environment and of biodiversity is what has, called, has caused this spillover. So the interconnection between health, uh, the environment, the ecosystem is very clear. How do we address that? By using the same sentence that was used and it's still being used and should be used in the future to address the, the pandemic. We will not be safe until everybody is safe. And that forces us to have cooperation among nations. And that forces us to strengthen again what was weakened called multilateralism. Uh, because we live in one house, which is the planet, and we need to cooperate. And so I think if we realize that and we're seeing good signs and good, for example, uh, uh, last week, the, G, the G7 took uh, last Friday, a very important step in, in helping the poor countries with their, with their vaccines. This is the type of cooperation that is needed to address the core problems, the basic problems that this pandemic is uh, sort of uh, showing that not, not that it cost them, it, it, uh, the, the pandemic aggravated the problems. And so we must address them all together. Well, you know, I, I agree with you that if you have an international problem, you need an international solution. Sadly, some countries don't seem like they're just waiting around to cooperate with us, Mr. President. <laughs> I would say, I would say China in particular. So I'd like to ask you a question about China and in, in the hemisphere in, in particular. You know that some people have said, okay, the pandemic's created a fire sale, right? And China's just going to be snapping up bargain investments. As you know, Colombia's accepted a significant amount of Chinese investment. The, this is the, the metro contract in, in Bogota, for example, um, and other uh, many other investments as well. But do, do you see a danger in, in Chinese investment in terms of you know, the, 
the strings attached? Uh, and, and, and how do you see uh, China's involvement in, in the hemisphere broadly? Well, I, I can refer to my personal experience with the Chinese investment. Uh, I never accepted the strings attached. And so the Chinese investment in Colombia was very small compared to other countries in Latin America. Uh, other countries did accept the strings attached. Um, of course, the Chinese uh, are interested in, in penetrating uh, different areas of the world. They've been very aggressive in Africa and uh, in some countries of Latin America. Um, not that the Chinese investment uh, is not welcomed. What is uh, not welcomed is what you mentioned, the strings attached. What, what is behind that? Like what happened uh, in Ecuador, for example. Right, exactly. So, so, so I, I hope that, uh, that the different leaders in Latin America realize, yes, the Chinese are welcome, but under certain conditions. Uh, not, uh, not the way they want, but the way it, it is useful for us, uh, Latin American countries. And uh, the, 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 the normal um, sort of a, a area for cooperating uh, of the U.S. is Latin America. And I think this bipolarity that is emerging from the post-pandemic will bring us closer, should bring us closer, U.S. and Latin America. Um, this uh, 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 this is something that uh, has been there on the table for 200 years, but maybe this time we can really put it to work. And uh, we have tremendous elements to complement each other and to create synergies between what the U.S. wants and needs and what Latin America wants and needs. Yeah, I, I agree. I do think there's an opportunity. I have one last question for you, of course. You know, this is coming up on an election year next year in, in Colombia. A lot of big issues associated with the economy and the recovery. And I know that uh, President Duque has announced a proposed tax reform in the next legislative section, session. And there's this tension uh, to, the, for, uh, with the need for fiscal reform, but also the need for, for stimulus to grow out of this out of this uh, crisis. And and um, and there's of course a danger associated with that, as it was with inv the investment grade rating, and uh, but also the, on the other hand, the need to address unemployment and so forth. And uh, what do you think the big issues are going into the election? And uh, and in particular, uh, how do you think this debate is going to come out in connection with Colombia's plan for economic recovery? I have been very careful of not uh, uh, making comments about. Uh, my successor, uh, President Duque, because I think the, the former presidents should help when they are asked to help, but should not interfere in their work. But saying that, uh, President Duque has big problems. He's weak politically. I don't think that the reforms that are needed, one of them is the fiscal reform, will pass in Congress. Uh, he only has... Uh, 14, 15 months left in his government. Um, and uh, what I hope is that uh, he uses this time to unite the country. We have been asking him, uh, unite the country. You need a country united to take 
bold and important decisions like we united before we were united before in taking important decisions. I hope that he understands that uh, his uh, political capital uh, is not enough to pass the reforms, the, the very important reforms, fiscal. We need a pension reform badly uh, and other type of reforms. But then if we unite, for example, around the implementation of the peace process, which is a constitutional uh, obligation, it's not that either he wants or doesn't want, it's right now in our constitution. Uh, if he does that, then he will sort of plant the seed for the next government to approve the reforms and for Colombia to keep the, the, the upgoing trend that we had before the pandemic. Mr. President, th thank you so much. Thanks for your friendship, your wisdom over the years and for joining uh, for joining me on Battlegrounds. A any last words you'd like to say to our viewers? No, uh, the only thing I have is uh, gratitude with you, General, uh, and with the U.S. governments, uh, all of them, and with the U.S. people, because we have been partners in, in the worst uh, uh, situations and partners also in the happy situations. And I hope that in the challenges that the world has, um, and we have many challenges after this pandemic, that that special relationship that we have had with the U.S. Uh, can be maintained, can be strengthened, because in that way, we will all be better off. Hey, President Santos, on behalf of the Hoover Institution, thank you for helping us learn more about battlegrounds important to building a future of peace and prosperity for generations to come. It was great to see you. Thank you, General, and thank you for having me in this very important event. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.